Uh, we're in the book of James this morning. That's where we're going to be. I want to start with a story, though. Uh, I want to read to you a portion of it. We'll finish, we'll finish the rest of it a little later. It's, uh, it's about a guy named Horatio G. Spafford. <laughs> Horatio G. Spafford was a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago with a lovely family, a wife, Anna, and five children. However, they were not strangers to tears and tragedy. Their young son died with pneumonia in 1871, and in that same year, much of their business was lost in the great Chicago fire. Yet God, in his mercy and kindness, allowed the business to flourish once more. On November 21st, 1873, the French ocean liner Ville de Havre was crossing the Atlantic from the U.S. to Europe with 313 passengers on board. Among the passengers were Mrs. Spafford and their four daughters. Although Mr. Spafford had planned to go with his family, he found it necessary to stay in Chicago to help solve an unexpected business problem. And he told his wife he'd be joining her and their children in Europe in just a few days. His plan was to take another ship. About four days into the crossing of the Atlantic, the Ville de Havre collided with a powerful, iron-hauled Scottish ship, the Loch Urn. Suddenly, all of those on board were in grave danger. Anna hurriedly brought her four children to the deck. She knelt there with Annie, Margaret Lee, Bessie, and Tanetta and prayed that God would spare them if that could be his will or to make them willing to endure whatever awaited them. Within approximately 12 minutes, the Ville de Havre slipped beneath the waters, the dark waters of the Atlantic, carrying with it 226 of the passengers, including the four Spafford children. A sailor rowing a small boat over that spot where the ship went down spotted a woman floating on a piece of the wreckage. It was Anna, still alive. He pulled her into the boat, and they were picked up by another large vessel, which, nine days later, landed them in Cardiff, Wales. From there, she wired her husband a message, which began, Saved alone, what shall I do? Mr. Spafford later framed that telegram and placed it in his office. Another of the ship's survivors, Pastor Weiss, later recalled Anna saying, God gave me four daughters, and now they're taken from me. Like, what's your reaction to that? If you were in that situation, would it be anger? Frustration? Somebody must be to blame for this, right? Let's sue someone. <laughs> Boat companies or military or water people or somebody. Would there be a sense of anger, the need to, to get justice, revenge, somehow this needs to be made right. I, I don't know about you. For me, I, I think that's my natural go-to. Like, I can see that the natural would be this sense of anger because what happened simply wasn't right, not fair. Well, it's interesting because that's what we want to uh, just mess with a little bit today as we talk together and as we're thinking and dreaming and see what God does with that in the book of James. We're in this series that we're calling Disciple Defined. Uh, a few weeks ago, we said a disciple, someone who uh, follows Jesus, is changed by Jesus, and committed to the mission of Jesus. That's what a disciple is. And we said we really wanted to look at what that looks like practically because, frankly, it's easy to say words like follow, changed by, committed to. But what does that, what does that mean in your everyday life? What does it mean when work seems to not be going the way it should? What does it mean when vacations turn sour? What does that mean in practical ways? And we went to a guy who we think probably gets it. He understood both sides of the coin, the, the not a disciple side and then the disciple side of the coin. His name is James. James wrote this letter. We have it in our book as the, the book of James. And, and, and we were told, and hopefully you remember, that, that James has a unique perspective because James was the brother of Jesus. And can you imagine that? 
Can you imagine having Jesus as your older brother? So when James broke the lamp and mom came into the room and he said, Jesus did it. Mom knows Jesus. Like the Bible tells us clear, Jesus didn't sin. Mary and Joseph understood this sense that Jesus was God in the flesh, God's son here to redeem people, to, to reconnect the relationship that was broken between man and God. And so when James says, Jesus did it, and Jesus goes, Mom, it wasn't me. I had to suck for James, right? When James and Jesus shared a room and mom said, okay, somebody needs to clean the room. Who was it? Was it Jesus? Is he the one that went and cleaned the room? And James was like, oh my gosh, this kid's driving me nuts. Or was it James? Because Jesus had more important things to do. I don't know. I'm just trying to figure out what it must have been like to be uh, Jesus' younger brother. Would that be odd? Can you imagine that in your head? Can you play with some of the, the potentials? If you had siblings, are you running that through your head? And especially if you were the younger, irritating one. I hear that's true. I don't know. I don't have siblings. Is that a true statement? Oh, it's a little bit uncomfortable all of a sudden. Some are nodding, right? Yeah, the younger one. Was James irritating to Jesus? Was James following Jesus everywhere he went? When James was just trying to poke at Jesus, I hear younger siblings do this to older siblings. I've seen it in some places that I won't mention. But did James ever try and just poke at Jesus to try to like get his, his rile going? And was Jesus always just like, James, James? How irritating that must have been is James, right? Can we picture this? Well, it's interesting because, because the scriptures, the Bible tell us that James didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was during a good chunk of Jesus' lifetime. Matter of fact, in John chapter 7, this is how the disciple John captures this. Uh, he says this, he says, After this, Jesus had been doing some things. He was in ministry for a while. He's about 30-ish years old. And it says, After these things that Jesus was doing, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there in Judea were looking for a way to kill him. Jesus in Galilee says, I don't want to go to Judea yet because the religious folks there are looking for ways to kill me. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you're doing. No one wants to become a public figure, acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourselves to the world. Do you understand? Read between the lines what the brothers are telling Jesus to do. Did you ever do anything to intentionally hurt one of your brothers? <laughs> like, no, hold the firework, it'll be fun. <laughs> I don't know. Nobody did that here, right? We're Jesus people, we don't do that. Kind of... I don't know, man. This is really weird. In verse 5, it uh, says this, just so we're clear on it. It says, For even his own brothers did not believe in him. And so James is a great guy to go to for these practical explanation of what it looks like to be a disciple because James moves from scoffer or skeptic to servant, because in James 1, James opens his, his letter, which is written to the 12 tribes of Israel, to the Jews, to the Gentiles, to this whole new church thing. He says, James, a servant of God and of my big brother Jesus. I added some words. Just track with me in that, right? He moves from scoffer to servant. What a transition. From not a disciple, like to trying to get Jesus to blow himself up or whatever that was about, not believing in Jesus, to somewhere James's heart is transformed by the truth of who Jesus is and he becomes this, this servant, this disciple of Jesus. I, I imagine it had to have something to do with the whole Jesus died, rose again, showed up to people, that kind of thing. James is probably thinking, oh, snap, <laughs> right? 
In those moments, I don't know when it happened for James, but somewhere James becomes this passionate follower of Jesus. Anyhow, that's free. None of that's for today. We're in James chapter 1, moving to verse 19, where we want to unpack and play with this issue of anger. Just a little bit. And the context, just so we're reminded of where we've been, is this, this idea of trials. James says that there are two kinds of trials, two types of trials that really uh, we experience in life. One, one are trials that we do not cause, we didn't sign up for, we didn't do anything uh, to get them. They just sort of drop on us. And the word is literally translated trials. There's nothing we can do uh, to, 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 to cause those. Uh, we don't have a lot of uh, options in terms of uh, trying to make those, figure those out, make them better, fix them, whatever. He says, matter of fact, the only option we have in those is how we respond. That's where James says, like, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. We have a, uh, an opportunity to respond one way or the other. And he, he says, he encourages it to be a response of joy. Not because we're weird or James is weird, but simply because that trial produces something. He goes on to talk about perseverance and maturity and completeness and this sense of, of wholeness in self. Right? And so that's one type of trial. And he says there's another kind of, uh, of trial that, that comes on us. The word is translated uh, temptation around verse 13 or so. And, and frankly, those are like trials that we somewhat, at least a little bit, are partly responsible for. Maybe not completely, but somehow that we have some complicitness in that trial. And, and he says, he uses the language, says, each is tried or tempted when carried away by his own evil desires. There's, there's something in that that we've sort of uh, been part of complicit. And, and, and Rick talked last week about how we have two options in that, to either fight or flee. And so this, this context of where we're going to land today is this context of trials, these different types of trials that come of us. And then James lands in... This idea of anger, this is what he says in verse 19. It says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Seems uh, pr- pretty obvious. You first read that. Seems pretty obvious. You know, we have two ears, one mouth. We should probably be better at uh, listening uh, than we are speaking. It doesn't seem like rocket science. Ma- matter of fact, every culture um, has had some sort of proverb or saying that's very similar to this. This is not unique to the Bible or unique to the Jewish culture. Um, Dio Christostom, he's a first century philosopher, Roman historian. He says this. He said, uh, I, for my part, should prefer to praise you for being slow to speak. And even more, that you are self-controlled enough to keep silent. The Perk of Both, which is a compilation of ethnical uh, rabbinic Jewish teachings, says this. Uh, there are four types of learners. Swift to hear and swift to lose. His gain is canceled by his loss. Slow to hear and slow to lose. His loss is canceled by his gain. Swift to hear and slow to lose. This is a happy lot. Slow to hear, swift to lose. This is an evil lot. Sounds like a body of Jewish teaching, doesn't it? You're like, wait a minute, what did that? I was really, I'm confused. Uh, there is a guy named Zeno of Sidium, a Greek philosopher in 300 BC, about 300 years before the time that Jesus lived. He said this, he said, we have two ears and one mouth, so we should listen more than we say. Uh, Confucius, a Chinese teacher and apparently baker of all fortune cookies, uh, in 551 BC, so even further before Jesus uh, lived on the planet, he says, listen widely to remove your doubts and be careful when speaking about the rest and your mistakes will be few. 
There's an, uh, an African uh, uh, tribal ethnic group called the Ovambo. One of their proverbs is this. It says, if you do not have patience, you cannot make beer. I'm absolutely convinced that has to do with listening and speaking. I'm quite sure how yet, but I'm sure it does. So there's nothing revolutionary uh, about this idea of being better listeners than we are speakers, which begs the question, why are we so bad at it in our culture? I mean, you only have to go to social media to know that we are not good at this. That's the, the rants, the, the speaking, whatever that happens on social media. I mean, that's, that's, that's so prevalent. And, 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 I, and I don't see a lot, enough, uh, nearly any, where people are trying to listen. And, and on the rare occasion where someone is trying to listen, they get called names, put down, pansy, sissy, or you can fill in the rest of the words. Because listening, for whatever reason, is just not prized highly in our culture, which is so bizarre. So, so this idea of being a better listener uh, than, uh, than speaker isn't rocket science. It's prevalent in all cultures. And, and I just dropped a, a bomb on you by asking why it's not done so well in our culture. Hopefully you're plugged into a life group because that's one of the sermon-based questions this week because that's, that's worthy of dialogue over and trying to think that through some. But here's what is revolutionary. What James adds to the equation if James had just stopped right there and said, be slow, uh, quick to listen, and slow to speak, that, that would have been very common. But he adds this next line, which, which causes us uh, something to think about. He says, and quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. See, that's super fascinating to me because uh, sometimes, maybe way too often uh, in the Christian community or in churches or sermons or, or reading or books or whatever, uh, I think it's been said that uh, Christians aren't supposed to get angry. You shouldn't get mad. If you do, it's bad or wrong or somehow a sin or whatever. Like anger is a bad thing. And it's interesting because James doesn't say that. It had been very simple for James to say something like quick to listen, slow to speak, and don't become angry. We almost expect to hear that. This revolutionary what James puts into here, and I think this is God absolutely speaking into James's heart, and he's putting it down in words for us to understand this idea of quick to listen, slow to speak, and slower to become angry. It's almost as if it opens this concept that sometimes anger is okay, is, is good, but that it's, it's got to be a, a very last, a very tail end of other things, listening and speaking. It should trail a distant third to ears and tongue. It's interesting because James is not alone in this concept. Paul, who writes a bunch of the New Testament, number of the letters that are in there, he says this in Ephesians 4.26. He says, in your anger, do not sin. See, Paul's laying out this whole, like, how Christians should live passage. And in the midst of that, he says, in your anger, don't sin. It's been very easy for Paul to say, and don't sin, or, and don't be angry. But he says, in your anger, as if there's something natural that, that anger is going to come and that maybe, maybe there's an allowance that at times maybe anger is a good response. But man, it's got to be, be so far behind this idea of, of listening. In, in verse 20, it's interesting because it unpacks this anger a little bit. It says, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Human anger, it, literally it means for the practice of human anger does not. For the practice of human anger. You understand that, right? You all know, we all know someone that anger is their every response. 
Anger's the go-to. It's the natural. Everything sets them off. That practice of anger. Practice literally means continual use of always angry at everything. It's speaking to frequency. That's the natural lean. Always on the, on the corner, always on the line of anger. And, and it says human anger, the idea of being angry at the things that people value, which very often those things are worthless to God. It speaks to character. So, so, so this idea of human anger, the practice of human anger, that's, that's not good. That's, that's unrighteous. It's not what James is talking about, but he seems to leave open this idea of potentially a right anger or righteous anger. Maybe being angry at the same things that anger God. Maybe that's what James is allowing for, that, that there is a right anger, but we have to approach that with great caution. Uh, the NIV application commentary says this about that. It says, It's possible, however, that James is instructing us to be uh, slow to assume the mantle of righteous indignation because in doing so, we implicitly claim to speak for God. Such anger certainly has a rightful place but should be only summoned after careful and diligent exercise of prayer and thought. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slower to become angry. Here's the point. Be really careful about what you say you're righteously angry over because it may not be something that God's angry over. It may not be something that gets God to that point. Matter of fact, there's a, there's a couple of verses in the scripture that actually speak to this. It talks about what makes God mad. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, the, proverb, uh, the, the writer of Proverbs there says this, says, there are six things the Lord hates. That's a pretty strong word. Hates is a strong word. And then they want to make sure we don't miss it. Seven things that are detestable to him. That's an even stronger word. And they go on to list all seven of them. It says, haughty eyes. This idea of pride, arrogance, God. Hates it. Makes him mad. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked schemes. This idea of manipulation for evil purposes. Feet that are quick to rush into evil. Folks who always seem to lean into doing evil or always doing wrong. A a false witness who pours out lies. Someone who seeks to destroy people's character. Right? They're bad mouthers. And a person who stirs up conflict in the community, someone who's divisive, seeks to stir up strife in, this, in the church, in this Christian community. Like God says he hates those things. I'd say those are the things that make God angry. It's interesting because Jesus got angry. Sometimes we get this picture of Jesus in our head as this really soft, kind of flowing, beautiful locks of hair. He never got a tan because he never went outside, you know, and just sat around all the time or whatever. Matter of fact, when I was a kid, uh, I had this little picture. It was really weird. It's those little two-by-two pictures that you get like of you and your girlfriend. And I had one of Jesus. I don't know why. Uh, It was weird. But it was the European Jesus. You know what I mean by that? It's the Jesus that didn't look like Jesus, (laughs) you know, because he was like fair skin and blonde hair and he was just like beautiful and whatever. And he all looks so like soft and it's that's such a, a terrible image because i don't think that's uh, jesus all the time in john chapter uh two here, here's the event uh, jesus is doing some stuff and he's going up to the temple with his guys to to worship whatever and it says when he was almost time for the jewish passover jesus went up to jerusalem in the temple courts he found people selling cattle sheep and doves and others were sitting at tables exchanging money and so he made a whip out of cords and drove uh, all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. I feel like we should react more. Jesus made a whip and started whipping people. 
I don't know if he hit him or not. We don't know. But I'm just telling you, if anybody, you know, if Jamie Bohr, the gal who leads our worship team, came out right now from the back, she's not, just so you're clear, with a whip and started just striking, you know, making that cool snapping noise, we'd be out of here, right? Somebody would get trampled, trampled out of exit. Like Jesus made a whip and started whipping people. That doesn't sound like a nice, soft response. That sounds like anger, right? Just made a whip and started whipping people. Man, that would have been great to be there that day, wouldn't it? That would have just been so... It says, and so he's whipping temple cords, both sheep and cattle, driving them out. And he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Jesus is flipping tables. Now, now we, we know from the rest of Scripture that Jesus didn't sin, so we've got to figure out how to reconcile this a bit because it's not like Jesus lost his stuff. He didn't lose his mind, you know, like when, when Dad gets home and realizes there's mud all over the carpet and the remote's broken and his favorite chair's been put outside and Dad loses his stuff and goes bananas. It's not that. Jesus isn't going bananas and yelling and screaming and flipping tables. Jesus didn't lose his cool. This was very measured, right, appropriate response that Jesus, like, wasn't uh, out of control. He was very much in control. How we reconcile that with whipping people and over urban tables we'll leave that for your life group too because that'll be fun and it goes on to say to those uh, who are selling doves he said get these out of here stop turning my father's house into the market his disciples remembered that it was written zeal for your house will consume me so understanding the history a little bit there that these religious people in that place had begun to make it incredibly complicated for people to get into relationship with god Worship was part of their thing, and part of their worship was these animals that had to be sacrificed. And, and, the, and the religious group was like, oh, no, you can't bring in your own dove. You've got to buy a dove from us at ten times the amount of what it would be. And you can't buy it with your money. You've got to buy it with, like, holy money or whatever that was. And so they'd exchange it at this exorbitant exchange rate. And so these people who are already living at a subsistence level where they don't have tons of extra money and they have to already make this trip to go and worship, they, they, these people are making it near impossible for them to connect with God. And it ticked Jesus off. Righteous anger. Something that God would be angry at. Somehow putting a block in between people and God. There's this other event in Jesus' life in Mark 3. Um, and man, I wish, I, wish, I wish we had video of this because this should be great stuff. Mark chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Another time uh, Jesus went into the synagogue. That was church for the Jews back then. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. And some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal. Something something huge just happened there. There was a guy in church who probably shouldn't have been there because he had a disability, and that was really frowned on back in that day, especially people with disabilities were often thought, well, they must have that because they've sinned somehow. It was a really wrong theology, but it was prevalent in that culture that, that he shouldn't be there because he was messed up. And so somehow he had got into the church service, and, and, and these religious folk who had probably been at that church for 100 years had their own pew saved for them. Nobody would ever sit in their pew because that's the pew that they were in all the time. They, they saw this. And they don't care about that guy. They only are watching Jesus closely to see if he's going to mess up. They're there to get Jesus on something. Because their law said it wasn't legal to do work on the Sabbath, and some of them had decided that healing was work. I don't know how that was a lot of work for Jesus when he was like, be healed. (laughs) That didn't take a lot, but somehow they decided that wasn't okay. They had made that clear, and so now they're looking to trap Jesus. As Jesus says to the man with the shriveled hands, stand up in front of everyone. Jesus asked them, the religious group, what is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? It's a great comparison. To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. 
So he looked around them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He looked at them in anger. That word anger is the same exact word that James uses when he talks about being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. It's the same exact word. It's, the, it's, the, it, it, it's a word that, that can literally mean wrath. Jesus looks at these people with anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. He's angry. Jesus is angry at these folks because they don't care about that guy. They don't care about what he's going through or, or, or who he is or whatever pain level he's at or whatever embarrassment factor he has. They don't care. They're just trying to catch Jesus doing something that they've decided is wrong. They want to get him. And Jesus has this, this moment of, of anger. And in it, he heals the guy, which had to have been great because the folks that are trying to catch him are like, oh, what's up with that? See, it's interesting uh, because uh, this isn't your encouragement to start whipping people or flipping over tables. Like, please don't hear that, right? Vengeance isn't ours. It's not our job to take revenge or make everything right. Romans twelve nineteen is clear. It says, uh, don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. That word wrath, same exact word that James used for anger, that, G- that Mark uses of Jesus when he was angry. Same exact word. Leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. But if we're going to get angry... Let's make sure that we're getting angry about the same things that make God angry. Now, let me just put it out there. 99% of the things that we get angry about are not the same things that God gets angry about. Let me try that one more time. 99% of the things that I get angry about are not the same things that God gets angry about. I get angry about stupid, worthless things. But man, it, it it sends me into this... And then later when I come down, I ask myself the question, how stupid am I? What's wrong with me? Why do I go there so quick? Well, it's interesting because James lays out what we do about this too, which is so cool. I love linear thinkers. James is a pretty linear thinker in verse 21. Um, he says this is, therefore, therefore is a huge word, therefore, like considering this whole quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, angry because the anger that we often have isn't the kind of anger that God would have and it certainly doesn't lead us uh, to anywhere in right ways. He says, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. He says, get rid of it. Get rid of the junk. Get rid of is the word that literally means strip off. It's this idea of, you know, you've been out all day long doing whatever you do and your clothes are just filthy because it was raining and muddy and gross and tire sludge off the road and whatever it is and, you're, and, you're, and, you're, and your clothes are so filthy that you make it into the garage and you just strip off your clothes and you leave them in the garage and you walk inside and you're almost nothing's in and then eventually you just throw those clothes away. You just strip them off and leave them there because they're, they're worthless. They're no good. They're disgusting. They're filthy. You don't want them to foul the rest of your house. James says, get rid of, strip off. Strip off this moral filth. Moral filth, this word, it means greediness, filthiness, moral uncleanness. And he pairs it with the word of evil, this prevalent evil. This evil that is so prevalent. Prevalent evil, this idea of an abnormal growth of wickedness. Some might translate it malice. James says, get these things as far away from you as possible. Get rid of them because those are the things that lead towards this sense of ungodly anger. These are the most strong terms James has available to him. And he goes there. And the meaning is clear. The disciple must get rid of all forms of evil and malice that lead to ungodly anger. 
you know what takes you there. I know what takes me there. I know the things that I put in front of my eyes that take me to that ungodly anger. Maybe it's social media, maybe it's the news, maybe it's the newspaper, maybe it's certain people, maybe, I don't know. I don't know for you. James says, like, strip it off. (laughs) Get rid of it. Get that stuff as far away from you as possible. And it's interesting because James doesn't say just, like, root it out and then leave it. Like, leave this hole or whatever where you've torn this, this thing that drives you there, this, this moral filth, this, this, this uh, prevalent evil. He says you fill it with something. Second half, verse 21, he says you fill it with this. Says, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. What do you fill it with? You fill it with submission. Submission to God's word. It's really interesting because I think anger and submission are words that don't happen in the same sentence. I think they're mutually exclusive concepts. James says, submission, you humbly, except humble is the right posture for the disciple. It characterizes the disciple, calm concern for others. He says, accept the word planted in you. This idea of allowing God's word to grow in you. Stop doing the things that stunt the growth. It's interesting because he says, humbly accept the word planted in you. Planted, that's a gardening term. That takes us right back to John 15. This idea of of when Jesus goes with his guys and says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And Jesus unpacks this whole concept of what it means to abide with him, to remain in him, to be with him, to be closely connected to him. He says, that's how you're going to grow. And it's interesting because the angry disciple is not abiding unless it's a righteous anger. It's an anger. It's something that God would be angry at. And I've already said, I think most of what I'm angry at, most of what we get angry at is not the things that God gets angry at. He says, humbly accept that word that's planted in you. Let it grow. Let it do its work because it can save your soul. This is just a really beautiful uh, Greek um, phrase. It, it means sozo psyche. It's not talking about saving you from hell. It's not how you come to Christ. It's not talking salvation. It's talking about this idea of literally keep that who you truly are deep down safe. The idea of making you well restoring health, preserving. That sounds like great mental health advice. Here's the conclusion. The disciple of Jesus is quick to listen, slow to speak, and even slower to get angry, being sure that the only thing we're angry at are the things that make God angry also. I don't know if it was true of uh, Horatio Spafford, if if the losses that he had experienced had him angry. I I imagine that uh, it should have been, it could have been, it certainly seems natural. But but here's the second half of Spafford's story. Uh, I'll back up just a little bit to take us to a a sailor rowing a small boat over the spot where the ship went down, spotted a woman floating on a piece of wreckage. It was Anna, still alive. Pulled her into the boat and they were picked up by another large vessel nine days later. From there she wired her husband a message. It said, saved alone, what shall I do? Mr. Spafford framed it, put in his office. Another of the ship's survivors, Pastor Weiss, later uh, recalled Anna saying, God gave me four daughters. Now they've been taken from me. Mr. Spafford booked passage on the next available ship and left to join his grieving wife. With the ship about four days out, the captain called Spafford to his cabin and told him at that moment they were exactly over the place where his children went down. According to Bertha Spafford Vester, a daughter born after the tragedy, Spafford wrote... It is well with my soul while on this journey. It is well as a hymn that's been sung for a couple hundred years. It sounds like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, 
Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well, it is well with my soul. Many of you have probably heard the chorus, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. An event that could have triggered tons of anger for Horatio Spafford, I think motivated him to be angry at the same thing God is angry at. People who are lost. Saddens God. Angers God that people are lost. He wants all to come to him. So the story goes a few years later in August 1881, the Spaffords moved to Jerusalem and shared the good news of Jesus with thousands of individuals. Eventually, when Mr. Spafford died, he was buried in that very city that he served. Was Spafford angry? Probably. Was he frustrated, sad, bothered by the events in his life? Most likely. Did he quit following Jesus? No way. Was he being changed by Jesus? Absolutely. Was he committed to the mission of Jesus? Obviously like any serious disciple of Jesus would be. We want to end the service this morning singing that, that song. It's a, it's a new rendition of it as well. That powerful chorus pops up. So if you'd stand, we'll sing together.